showtime. Welcome, one and all. Welcome to Night Fright. I'm your host, Brent Holland. Get the coffee going. Get the tea going. Get a beverage of your choice going, folks. This is going to be one fantastic show tonight. Here's where we're going to go tonight, folks. Inside the real Area 51, with one of the world's leading experts on Area 51, author Tom Carey. Now, here's some of the questions we're also going to look at tonight. Are there alien bodies on ice at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base? What was the jawbone that spoke Martian? Is there really a Hangar 18 at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base? Thomas J. Carey is a former Air Force veteran, folks, who, listen to this, held a top-secret crypto clearance. He's got an M.A. in anthropology from California State University, and he also attended the University of Toronto in its Ph.D. program, also in anthropology. He has been a MUFON, Mutual UFO Network, State Section Director for Southeastern Pennsylvania, a Special Investigator for the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies, and was on the board of directors there. Tom has also been a consultant and interviewee on the highly acclaimed two-hour sci-fi channel documentary, The Roswell Crash, Startling New Evidence. He's been on the Discovery Channel's Conspiracy Theory, the History Channel's The UFO Hunters, and his 2007 book co-authored with Don Schmidt, Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the Sixth Year Cover-Up, was the number one best-selling UFO book in the world in 2007 to 2008. How you doing, Tom? Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Good evening, Brett. Glad to be with you. How are things in Pennsylvania tonight? Oh, beautiful day today. It's a beautiful evening uh, as we speak. As we speak, I'm sitting in Montreal in my brother's backyard uh, underneath a tent, if you will, folks, uh, hoping that the clouds don't rain down upon me. <laughs> Taking oh, a chance tonight, but it, it's such a beautiful oh, yeah. And uh, after the winter we've had, boy, I'm going to take a, uh, every opportunity to take in this summer. Tom, let's start off right away, shall we? You know, we're closing in on the July 2nd anniversary of the Roswell incident. Now, what's making Roswell to this day so different from all the others? all the other crash sites and all the other sightings. Why does Roswell stand out amongst well, the others? Well, Brett, uh, Roswell is called the uh, grandfather of all UFO cases for good reason. Uh, there, I, the short answer is that there's so much there there. Most of your UFO cases involve uh, lights in the sky or a blurry, smudgy, photograph, uh, a single witness, uh, that, that those are the norms. And uh, Roswell, and uh, unlike abduction cases, where, you're again, you're talking about a single person telling a story in anecdotal testimony, Roswell is a nuts, an old-fashioned nuts-and-bolts UFO case. We're talking about a solid spaceship. We're talking about uh, biological beings. I want to say flesh and flesh and 
blood, but uh, we're not sure they had blood. <laughs> but uh, uh, real beings uh, and multiple, multiple, multiple witnesses. We have over 600 to date first and second hand witnesses to this event. Is, Tom, is there any hard evidence? I understand that there was a dig that you were involved with in, in 2013 in September. Yes. Did that, did that uncover anything at all? Yes, uh, Brett. The uh, dig we did last fall was unlike the one we had conducted in 2002 with the Sci-Fi Channel. The, the 2002 dig... We had uh, an open checkbook uh, supplied uh, happily by the Sci-Fi Channel, and we had a full, full-fledged archaeological dig with uh, uh, leaders from the University of New Mexico Department of Archaeology. We had uh, lots of volunteers to do the digging, etc., etc., etc. Well, last fall, it was privately funded, so we didn't have as much money at hand, but. We didn't do any uh, hands uh, and knees on the desert floor digging. What we did was we we brought uh, metal detectors. It was strictly a metal detector scan of the desert floor. And we did come up with some items, not to, not to say it was part of the dashboard <laughs> of the uh, of the craft that crashed in 47, but we we came up with some items of interest that are currently being tested uh, of a, you know they were uh, grayish silvery in color and uh, so far and not they, indigenous to the desert in any not, sense not indigenous to the desert floor and uh, not in you know not readily identifiable as a i know in, in 2002 we found such things as uh, canteens uh uh, horses, uh, ho- steel hoofs, mm-hmm. horseshoes, uh, you know, bullet uh, chambers, sure. things like that. Things like that were readily readily identifiable. But this time they were just bits and pieces of something that were gray, very thin, uh, not part of the desert floor, but with uh, tremendous, tremendous strength that. Uh, would, you wouldn't expect from such uh, thin, small items. So that's where we're at right now, and uh, I don't have the answer as to how they will test out um, uh, as far as their elements or, you know, the metallic elements are concerned. Fair. But the uh, tensile strength, uh, tremendous tensile strength, which certainly uh, uh, you would expect a craft from uh, – you know, beyond the solar system to have something like that. So, yes, we we did do a dig. There, there are things under investigation, and uh, we're we're not finished with uh, uh, analyzing those because we want we want to do due diligence. We we don't want to come out and have a press conference like they have in the past with certain items. Uh, they say, oh, here's a here's a piece of uh, this is certainly from the Roswell craft, and that's the last you hear of it. And you know, it's gone off the off the map virtually. Was there any markings on any of the? Um, no, nothing. No, the, no. The the okay. pieces were, uh, I would say, uh, maybe two inches by one inch, very small, and uh, 
you know, when it's when they're that small, it's it's sort of the needle in the haystack as to what you're going to find on it. And these didn't have any markings of any kind. In fact, they looked unremarkable. But uh, from what I hear from my associate uh, Don Schmidt, that uh, that so far it's displaying tremendous tensile strength. And that wow. it's able able to withstand thousands of pounds of per square inch without bending. So, so that's phenomenal. That, that that must be my. Did you hear that? That must be my. Uh, I'll, let me shut off my email and hopefully we don't uh, get lost here. Are okay. you still there? Yep. Um, speaking oh, with Tom. Oh. Tom carries our guest tonight, folks. Triple W dot Night Fright Show. He's got a new book out along with co-author Don Schmidt. The book is called. Inside the Real Area 51, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest book cover. That'll take you right to a spot where you can order the book from the comfort of your own home, as I like to say, and get that tea going, get the coffee going. We've got a full two hours with Tom tonight. We're going to get into all kinds of aspects of Area 51, including to what I alluded to in the beginning. Are there alien bodies on ice? And we'll be getting to get that question shortly. First, I want to go back to Tom and ask him, Tom, um, the material that, that you managed to, to find, um, did that have any radiation attached to it? Was, it? was there any detectable radiation at all? The uh, only allusion to radiation testing was done by Jesse Marcel, when they first went out to the site, he was the first military person to actually visit the site, and he did take a uh, uh, my goodness, I love a, radio, a radiation detector. Uh, what do you? Uh, a Geiger uh, counter. Geiger counter. Oh my goodness! That's uh, okay. It's okay. Losing it here. Uh, Geiger counter, and uh, he did not detect any radiation. No, and that's the only illusion uh, that we can find to uh, something like uh, radiation being tested for. So I would have to say based on that, no. Something I've always been curious about, and that is, did the craft break up above the ground or did the craft come apart once it hit the ground? Was the point of impact the cause of the craft coming apart? Good, uh, very good question. And the answer is very easy. Again, uh, the uh, the answer is provided not only by Jesse Marcel and uh, another fellow by the name of uh, Lewis Rickett, uh, who were both at the at the crash site, but uh, by the description from all of the witnesses who were there describing the the crash scene, and it, it's obvious that the whatever crashed, and we suspect it was a a craft of unknown origin uh, from outside of our solar system, it, it exploded in the air and rained down small bits of metallic debris covering a sheep pasture on Mac Brazel's ranch that ran for approximately a mile by uh, a couple hundred feet wide in a fan shape, small pieces. And uh, so that suggests that one of two things happened. Either it was an internal explosion that caused it to explode, that we couldn't, we couldn't speculate as to what it might be, or an external force had uh, acted upon it, most likely a lightning strike. Because at that time of year, 
early July 1947, well, every early July, New Mexico is, uh, goes through what they call the monsoon season. Heavy thunder and lightning storms. And if you've ever seen them, you've, you've never seen anything like it. Huge lightning strikes again and again and again. And uh, from the witnesses that we do have, unfortunately, they're all gone now. They have described hearing a muffled explosion in between thunderclaps. That was not a, a clap of thunder, but something else that, that they said that they heard. And this would have been the ship exploding. And so we then speculate, well, what could have caused it to explode? And it, our, our, our best guess, based on what we know, is that it was a lightning strike. Again, that's speculation, but that's our best guess. Now, was that the entire ship? No. Inside was the inner cabin or an escape pod of some sort. It was sort of uh, egg-shaped. It was either the inner cabin or some sort of uh, uh, facility inside the craft that withstood the explosion. That remained intact and flew another 30 miles and came to rest just north of Roswell, perhaps about uh, 32 miles north and about five miles west of Highway 285, north of Roswell. So it's actually in two parts. The one part is a field full of small pieces that actually rain down on the sheep pasture. And then this escape pod or inner cabin that uh, withstood the explosion and continued on another 30 miles and came to rest uh, just north of Roswell. Now, uh, the Bodies, as far as the bodies are concerned, there were bodies or occupants, let's call them, inside the craft. We believe there were between five and seven, with the magic number probably being around five, because that's what's most described to us. Four of them were dead, but there was one still alive. The one still alive remained alive for the next five years and and expired in 1952. Uh, from what we understand, it was undergoing some sort of test, and it expired during the test. The other four, uh, two of them were at the Brazel Debris Field site, maybe two and a half miles east of the, the actual debris field site on a, on a low bluff, and the rest were at the site where the rest of the ship had come to rest north of town. And that's where the one that was alive was uh, located, walking around the desert, uh, you know, more than likely wondering where it was at. Wow. Uh, and uh, so... Is there any witnesses to that? Yes. Yes. The uh, Before the military got out there, the... Roswell Fire Department had received a call, and the Sheriff's Department received a call, and they got out there. And we get the story from a fireman, fire, fireman crew chief named Dan Dwyer. We get it from his daughter, Frankie Rowe, that uh, he had gone out there and actually arrived as far as the official Roswell people. He was the first one out there. Now, this is the site 
just north of town where the, where the uh, egg-shaped uh, affair was uh, had come to rest. So he gets out there, and he's immediately drawn to these occupants that are lying dead on the desert floor, probably two dead uh, that he saw. And he's walking towards them, and he's, oh, my goodness, what do we have here? They, because they don't look like humans. I mean, they have two arms and two legs. It's in a very large head. And uh, he's looking at that when all of a sudden something catches his eye out of the corner of his eye. There's some movement. And he turns and he looks and, oh, my goodness, here's another. Here's one of them walking around. It's just, uh, you know, it's upright, walking on two legs. And uh, so his family, when he got home that night, they said, well, you know, what did it look like? What did it look like? He says, well, it was about three and a half to four feet tall and uh, had very large head. And no eye, I'm sorry, two, two uh, little, uh, two little nostrils, not a nose, but two little holes in the front of the, the head for a nostril, two in the side of the head for ears, for, you know, no, no ear flaps, just the two little holes. And, uh, two, uh, wide set eyes. And he said, in fact, it looked like what they call in the Southwest the child, child of the earth. Now the child of the earth, is another name for it. It's a potato bug or a Jerusalem cricket. It's a, like a land scorpion. It's a large cricket, scorpion-like. But the, they call it the child of the earth because of the shape of its head. The shape of its head is like a, uh, it's like an inverted pear. It looks like, uh, you know, an egg shape that you hold it upside down with a narrow part, uh, the pointed part on the bottom. And he said, uh, it looked like a child of the earth. And uh, that's all he said about it. Well, then they said, well, did you talk to it? I mean, did you talk to it? And he said, well, yes, we we talked to one another, but we didn't talk like we're talking by moving our lips, moving our mouth. We talked to one another in our heads. And uh, today we would call that mental telepathy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, what did it say? What did it say? He said, well... Actually, it was, he, Dan said the, the being was more concerned about him than he was about the being. And the being told him, he said, don't worry about me. I accept my fate. My craft has been destroyed. My comrades are no longer alive. I'm by myself and I accept my fate that I, that I am stranded here. And that was pretty much the conversation. The, the being, although it had just undergone a devastating explosion and crash with the uh, ship destroyed, comrades dead, he is, he is trying to calm down Dan Dwyer by saying, don't worry about me, I'll be, I'll be okay, I, I accept my fate. When Dan came forward with this story, was there any threats against his life from the military or government well, agencies? There were, yes, there was, uh, there was threats. Uh, for all of the firemen, for all the local officials, uh, the the, the uh, base commander from uh, the Roswell Army Airfield south of town came out to the firehouse because uh, he obviously had heard that the fire truck had gotten out there and that some of the fellows had seen everything. So the uh, the commanding officer, Colonel William Blanchard, came out to the firehouse 
and said, okay, fellas, this is a national security item. No one is to ever speak about this again. And, of course, you know, the, the, the town of Roswell depended largely for its, uh, uh, you know, economy for the, the, the air base south of town. You know, the, the airmen would come into town and buy things, and uh, they, they depended on, in large degree for the servicemen for their economy. Mm-hmm. So they did not take the threat lightly. And uh, Blanchard meant business. No one was to talk about it. And uh, uh, it was a two-page story in the local newspaper. And uh, that was it. And threats were issued, death threats to uh, local civilians who knew about it, who had seen something, who had heard about it, especially who had heard about the bodies, mm. or had seen the bodies. Death threats were issued. How did the alien that was walking around, how did that particular alien come to be captured? Any idea? Well, it, was, it wasn't captured. I mean, it, it was three and a half feet tall, about uh, 40 pounds, walking around. It had no place to go, and it's out there on the desert floor, and up, up uh, the, the military shows up. So what's it going to do? It, they just took it into custody put it into an ambulance and uh, took it off to the base, hmm. the base hospital. It, it wound up at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, or Wright Field it was called back then, right. uh, for the rest of its, uh, for the rest of its days. Tom, by the way folks, we're speaking with Tom Carey. He's got a new book out with co-author Don Schmidt called Inside the Real Area 51, or if you're like me, I'm glued to my chair right now because this is, this is amazing stuff he's coming forward with. Uh, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest book cover. That'll take you right to a spot where you can buy the book. What are some of the smoking guns? What are the, some of the things that the government is still trying to deny to today but are definite smoking guns in your opinion? Well, the uh, first one is the uh, first news. The first press release that they put out was that they had recovered a flying saucer. That was the first story. Uh, RAAF, that's Roswell Army Airfield, not the Royal Air Force, but RAAF <laughs> captures flying saucer in Roswell region. And uh, they, the, the story said that they had ca- they had captured it but they didn't capture it they, they, they just recovered it because it had crashed and uh, they said that uh, the the wreckage was being flown to higher headquarters for analysis now higher headquarters was Wright Patterson Air Force Base well the story no no sooner hit the air the airwaves and the newspapers than the Air Force changed its tune by saying that, well, folks, it uh, it wasn't a flying saucer that uh, the men of the 509th had recovered. Now, mind you, the men of the 509th, this is the group that ended World War II by dropping the atom- two atomic bombs on That's Japan. Right. Mm-hmm. And in 1947, they were the only nuclear-tipped uh, military outfit of any country in the world. So... The men of the 509th had their triggers on the nuclear uh, 
well, their fingers on the nuclear trigger. Well, now, do you want people with their fingers on the nuclear trigger that can't differentiate between a an interplanetary craft and a rubber weather balloon? Yeah, I, I would, don't, I don't I would think, think so. so. Yeah, no, that, but that's that's what the Air Force wanted us everybody to believe that they had made a mistake. It wasn't an interplanetary craft. It was a rubber weather balloon and a tin foil radar target, which they which they were entirely familiar with because they launched them every day when they were doing their practice bomb runs. You know, they they would send them up mm-hmm. to check out the the, the winds aloft, and uh, so they were entirely familiar with them. So how could they conclude that one of those was an interplanetary spacecraft? Well, that's, that was the, the big lie. That was the suspension of disbelief. But the newspapers bought the story and they dropped it. They dropped this uh, story uh, lock, stock and barrel. It was like I said, it was a two day story. Uh, and, the, and, you know, the first day it was a, a spacecraft. Second day it was a weather balloon. End of story. Well, that was that was okay for the press. They were only too happy to, to uh, get rid of this story because the mainstream media, even today, they do not like stories about UFOs. They they will not cover it. And uh, as you know, it's mostly cable television that covers uh, UFOs That's and right. mysterious yeah. things like that, Bigfoot and Shark Week and all that sort of stuff. Right. On. So the uh, the story's dead. Well, how, however, there were two problems. They still had the military fellas who had been out there to clean up the site, the the, uh, the crash sites. They knew about it. They had seen everything. And also, there were civilians from Corona and Roswell and outlying ranchers that had been to the site before anybody and who knew about it and had seen things. So they had those two groups of people to silence as well. And they proved more problematical than the newspapers. And they had to actually uh, issue death threats. And they brought in people from Wright Pat, Wright Patterson, mm-hmm. to uh, scare everybody that uh, they might meet uh, an untimely demise if they didn't shut up. And the military guys, they gathered them all in various groups and issued a, a threat that went uh, something like, okay, you guys, whatever you think you saw, whatever you think you heard, you didn't. And if you want to keep talking about it or you want to learn more about it, you can uh, learn about it in Leavenworth. Now, Leavenworth is a federal sure. prison in Kansas. And so <laughs> that was the message in the military fellows. So, well, <laughs> that's, that's it for me. And my mouth is shut. And so uh, that's how they handled the, the uh, airmen on the base. But the civilians were the toughest element because, as you know, uh, the military does not have control over civilians except in time of war or national emergency and uh, martial law. That's right. So they had to do something else. And so what they did, they first would try to cajole them by saying, well, it's a, it's a real national security item, and if you're a patriot, you will keep quiet about this. 
And if they suspected that the person was not really going to keep quiet, and I don't know how they determined this, but in certain cases they issued the death threats, that they would not only kill them, but they would kill their children as well, which is just unconscionable when you think about it. But that's what they did back in 1947. The military was king, as you – well, you're – too young to remember, but uh, after World War II, the military was uh, uh, at their high tide as far as public uh, esteem was concerned. We had just defeated the Axis powers, and uh, everything was, uh, the war was over. The troops had come home uh, victorious. And uh, so whatever they tended to say tended to be believed. 1955, Area 51. A couple of CIA guys got together, Richard Bissell was one, and said, let's make Area 51 uh, yes. to test under the auspices of testing the U-2 spy planes. Yep. When did the bodies from Roswell, when did the crash debris from Roswell get switched from Wright-Patterson, or maybe it hasn't, to over to Area 51? Well... As near as we can determine, and this comes from other investigations, because we have concentrated uh, uh, mostly on Roswell and what had happened and what later happened to the Roswell wreckage in the bodies. And that's why we wrote this book, uh, Brett, is because most of your, if not all of the Roswell books, including ours, they close when the material in the bodies are shipped to right field, right Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, and then, you know, that's the end of the story. Well, we we uh, said, well, let's, let's take a look at what happened to all of that stuff after it got the right field, and that's where our new book, Inside the Real Area 51, picks up, is when it gets to right Patterson. Now, as near as we can determine uh, from the researches of others, is that the material at Wright-Patterson remained there. Now we're talking about the, the wreckage, the physical wreckage, and the bodies, plus the live one, which only lasted five years. But the bodies themselves and the wreckage remained there from 1947 for another 35 years. Now, that takes you to the early 1980s. Now, Dayton, Ohio is a busy place. It's, you know, it's, it's a city. It's, uh, it's, uh, well populated. And, uh, the story had gotten out that, uh, Ray Patterson had a lot of secrets to divulge. And, uh, if you talk to anybody that has lived in Dayton, uh, almost all of them have a story about the base and some of the secrets that are there. And uh, our sense was that uh, the the they they had to move things because it was becoming too hot, you know, quote unquote, too hot there to keep that stuff because it was becoming known. So the story that we were able to piece together is that it, the first stop off after Wright Patterson. And 35 years was Area 51, just northwest of uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, when the old Nellis test range. Very isolated, 
uh, Groom Lake is right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, easy to see who's coming and who's going. Now, you ask someone on the street, have you ever heard of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base? And they'll say, well, no, uh, not really. Uh, but you ask about Area 51, they've all heard about Area 51. Do you think that it, Area 51 then in the story, in this narrative, was together to uh, deflect off of where the bodies and the materials really were being held? Kind of like, um, I'm trying to think, in a military operation, you'll have an explosion go off on, in one area to have everybody's focus looking there as opposed to looking at Ray Anderson's. Well, no, I think the bodies and the wreckage did go there. Okay. Uh, uh, that's it, I, it, I know that, but I guess what I'm trying to did they blow up Area 51 to keep people's eyes off of Ray Patterson? No, because they, if people, if the bodies and the wreckage had left, then, uh, you know, people can look to their heart's content and, and, and they won't find anything. And uh, Area 51, as you know, Brett, was uh, constructed in 1955, 54, 55, not to house aliens, but to uh, develop spy planes. Most notably, the first one was the U-2 the Lockheed uh, Dragon Lady, as they called it, the U-2, then the SR-71 Blackbird, and and things like that. It only became associated with aliens in the late 1980s with a fellow by the name of Bob Lazar, Robert Lazar, who came came out public and said that uh, he was a, a scientist. I don't know if he was a physicist or an engineer or something like that. And that uh, his job was to uh, work on a uh, flying saucer that they 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 had nine nine hangars that were built into the side of a mountain, and uh, he worked in one of them, and he presumed that uh, in the other eight there were also UFOs, flying saucers, but he worked on one of them, and he he went public with that, and if you've ever seen him. He, he does physically look, wow, that guy does look smart, you know. <laughs> uh, he looks like a real whiz, and uh, he, he speaks very glibly, and he just presents himself as he, uh, he like he knows what he's talking about. Well, the problem was that Lazar, uh, he, you know, he, he gave out his partial resume that he, he graduated from MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, very prestigious uh, engineering school, hard sciences, hard sciences, and also uh, Cal Polytechnical Institute in San Luis Obispo, again like MIT mm-hmm. uh, for uh, scientists and physical sciences. But he was a graduate of both. Well, someone got the idea. Well, let's let's check this out. We're not just going to accept this at face value. Well, both schools, after checking, they could find no record of his ever being there. Well, that, you know, in a court of law, if you're caught in a fib, if you're caught in a, in a lie, if you're caught in a, 
something like that, that that where you told what appears to be an untruth, you are toast as far as a witness is concerned. And that's where Bob Lazar remains today. He has his supporters Mm -hmm. who will say, well, they couldn't find his record because the government, he was so secret that the the government went, went in and they expunged his record because he was just so ultra secret they had to do that. Well, I, I myself am not on that side of the ledger. I'm on the other side. I don't think he attended either school. And why would the, why would the, uh, those institutions lie to us? So, uh, is there any right now, is there any alien spacecraft at Area 51 still? Well, I, I for one do not know. Okay. Uh, because the Lazar story, focused attention away from right patterns, just like you said, maybe maybe it was inadvertent, maybe it was deliberate, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But it focused attention away from right patterson which really never did get a lot of it, except from people who knew, to uh, uh, that area, uh, Groom Lake, uh, Area 51, S4, where, where uh, Lazar worked. Uh, and that's why... When people are asked about Area 51, they don't talk about the spy planes, even even when they had that, uh, again, you're probably too young, but in May of 1960, a U-2 spy plane was shot down over the Soviet Union. Gary. Um, Gary Powers. Gary Powers, that's right. Yeah. Yes. And even in that that particular incident, which caused worldwide attention, on uh, the U-2, they never really focused at all on where the U-2 was constructed and and uh, what went on there. It was mostly just, well, there was a U-2 spy plane. Yes, we build them, and uh, one got shot down over the Soviet Union, and they put Gary Gary Powers on trial, and uh, they ultimately exchanged him for Rudolf Abel, I believe, a Soviet spy, a few years later. Now, uh, the the thing what the the, the uh, with Lazar though the 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 uh, cat was out of the bag, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Because ever since Lazar, Area Fifty One has been associated with aliens, and alien spacecraft, and alien wreckage, flying saucers. You remember Lazar had this. Uh, uh, one of the plastic model companies made a, they call it the sport model. That was the, uh, flying disc that Lazar said he worked on. And uh, you can go to your hobby shop and still buy one. <laughs> but, uh, uh, Area 51 has been indelibly associated with aliens, alien technology and alien, uh, bodies, uh, since the late eighties. Tom, I'm thinking, you know, if any time we find a new species, the first thing we try to do is, is explore it, take it apart, and try and figure it out, especially if it's found dead. We don't like to kill animals or anything like that. Have they done autopsies, I imagine many, on the alien bodies, and any idea what they have found? Yes. Um, the... the, the uh Stories. The, again, I, ha, I point out the, what we know. 
what uh, my co-author and I know about Roswell, we know mostly from conducting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews, uh, over 600 of which have a little piece of the story. Not every every witness we have interviewed knows the whole story. They just know their little piece. Mm. And it's our job to put it into like a jigsaw puzzle, put the pieces together so they fit into the most parsimonious uh, model that fits most of the data, data. And that's what we've done. And as far as the autopsies are concerned, the, the, they apparently attempted a preliminary autopsy when they brought the bodies in from the desert floor to the Roswell base. Uh, they first went to the hangar. They, they had a big hangar there. The hangar is still there. It's still a, a, a functioning uh, aircraft hangar, uh, but the base is no longer a military base. It's a civilian uh, storage facility, and Roswell's airport is on the old base. Well, they brought the bodies into the, as well as the wreckage, into the this big hangar. And the bodies remained there for, uh, I, I would guess, maybe half an hour, an hour. And uh, they were then transported to the base hospital. And at the base hospital, they attempted an, uh, pre- a preliminary autopsy. But apparently the smell was so bad because these beings were rapidly decaying. They had been out on the desert floor for several days in the... In July, it's very hot out there, and uh, they, they were in the, uh, starting to really decay. And the smell was so bad that they had to stop the autopsy, put them in uh, lead-lined uh, body bags, and then flown off to uh, Wright-Patterson, where the official autopsies were conducted. Uh, they had an aeromedical squadron, an aeromedical facility at Wright-Patterson, and they had the equipment there, uh, cold storage, all sorts of stuff that they could do it uh, in, in much more controlled conditions to and to preserve the uh, tissue. Any idea what some of the results of that yes. autopsy? Sure, go ahead. Yes, we get we get those results from one person. His name was Leonard Stringfield. He lived in Cincinnati, Ohio. He was a businessman. Uh, he was in the, served in the Pacific in World War II. And, uh, he, uh, was interested in UFOs. And he had friends, both civilian and military at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, which was not far away from Cincinnati. And over the years, they, uh, word gets around that, the, oh, uh, this fellow, Len Stringfield, he's really a, he's a UFO researcher. You might want to tell him your story. And he collected a whole slew of stories about crashed UFOs starting in the, after World War II, you know, perhaps uh, late 40s, early 50s, somewhere in there he started collecting these stories. And uh, a lot of them had to do with Wright-Patterson. Now, again, you're too young to remember this, but <laughs> I keep saying that. But you're very kind. <laughs> but uh, back in the 1950s, uh, let me ask you, who was the chief advocate 
for UFOs, for interplanetary UFOs, and that the government there was a government cover up. Do you know who that person was? Oh, uh, I was going to say J. Allen Hynek, but uh, no, tell us who it is. I'm sorry. It I'm was uh, Donald Kehoe. Ah, that's it. Fellow by the name of Donald Kehoe, still my favorite writer uh, of books on the subject. Former Marine Corps major, he was the most outspoken voice that the U.S. government was conducting a cover-up on UFOs, which he concluded were interplanetary. Now, there was one thing about Kehoe, however, that was detrimental to the cause, is that because of these so-called contactees, do you, do, you re, do you know the contactees, what I mean by the contactees? Yes, uh, uh, people who have been abducted. Pretty much, yes. Yeah. Back then they didn't call it abduction, though. They, the contactees were just regular folks that claimed to have space brothers that uh, would take them in their ships and fly them around the solar system. And uh, who was to doubt them? Because they seemed so sincere. There were fellows by the name George Adamski, Howard Menger, uh, a number of others. And they would they hold these conventions and spin their tails. And uh, these were obviously crackpots, but they 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 infested the UFO community to such a degree that it became a joke. And unfortunately, they tainted the whole field just by their by their uh, crazy stories. They wrote books, which sold very well, by the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, they the, the the mainstream media would not would not only not touch them, but they would not touch the subject. We still suffer today from the effects of these contactees. And uh, most of the abductions today, they, 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 they talk about experiments being conducted on them and, you know, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. the, the uh, fertilization yeah. things and all that. Mm-hmm. But these contactees, they, they was just, oh, my space brothers, they're here to save the world from ourselves. And they, they talked of benevolence and just how wonderful these people were. And uh, anyway, because of them, Donald Kehoe, would not touch any story about a cra- crashed UFOs. There were stories, but he he got as far away from them as he could because to Kehoe, those stories were too close to these contactees stories. So the whole field of that there might have you know might have been a crashed UFO or two certainly at Roswell in '47 uh, remained dormant. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't until Leonard Stringfield gathered enough of these stories that he started publishing these monographs. Uh, I forget the t- uh, they had titles. The uh, 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 recovery, uh, boy, I, uh, the UFO syndrome, something uh, crash retrievals. He called them crash retrievals, and a number of those stories. Uh, centered on a on a town called Roswell, and uh, that was really the beginning of it. Just of let the, me do this, Tom. I just got a a little uh, 
a little uh, escape uh, text in asking who our guest is. Tom Carey, folks. I hope you're as glued to your seat as I am. I've just been letting him go because, uh, you know, it's like watching um, the Roswell movie. <laughs> it's incredible stuff. Uh, and this is all his uh, his virtual research. He's written a book along with uh, a name I'm sure most of you will recognize, and that name is Don Schmidt. And the book is called Inside the Real Area 51. And, of course, uh, both Tom and Don have done countless amount of uh, television uh, in terms of History Channel programs, Discovery Channel programs. So if you're just tuning in, this is who we're speaking with, and we're talking about, of course, the real deal, the real Area 51, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest book cover. That'll take you right to a spot where you can order the book. Um, let's go back to Tom. Tom, now... You We're know, talking about uh, Alan, uh, not not Alan Hynek, but uh, Leonard Stringfield. That's right. Yeah, uh, he was putting these the, little books together. Yes, these monographs, uh, the uh, crash retrieval syndrome about crash saucers, and he was the first one to really uh, collect these stories and publish them. And uh, unfortunately, he did not name his sources. They, I mean. You know yourself, Brent, that uh, if you publish a book, a nonfiction book, and, and make these claims but refuse to name your sources, that uh, that's not very good. <laughs> it loses a lot of power. <laughs> and uh, uh, so Stringfield did not name his sources. And uh, it was left to people like myself and my co-author, Don Schmidt, to ferret out these saucers, uh, sources to uh, flesh out the story. Well, uh, he published actually eight monographs before he passed away uh, on crashed UFOs. And uh, we affectionately refer to him today as the father of crashed saucers. And uh, we, uh, our hats are off to him because he broached a part of the UFO phenomenon that no one else would touch. And uh, so uh, moving along, uh, 1980, uh, uh, Stringfield pu published his first monograph in 1978, to put that into a, a context of what uh, decade we're talking about. Uh, two years later, the first Roswell book was published. It's called uh, The Roswell Incident by Charles Berlitz, who was the language uh, fellow, you know, learned German, learned Spanish. These Ber Charles Berlitz. Uh, sure. uh, the thing about Berlitz was that he had just had a bestseller on the uh, about the Bermuda Triangle, and so that's why he was in included in the in the uh, authorship of this book instead of Stan Friedman, who had teamed up with uh, William Moore to do the research. So you'll, if you look at the book, you'll, you'll see it's, it, the authors are Berlitz and Moore, Charles Berlitz and William Moore. And Stan Friedman is not given uh, his due on, on this because they felt that they wanted a name, and that was uh, Charles Berlitz. Anyway, I read, when I read that book, I was blown away and uh, because we're talking about a nuts and bolts craft potentially with uh, bodies that were spirited away 
by the U.S. government or the Air, Air Force, back then it was the Air Corps, and are hidden away somewhere. And it had everything that a good mystery novel had. And I think it's because of that that it's such a popular, it's the most popular UFO case of all time because it has so much mystery to it with the potential payoff at the end of the line. The payoff is a nuts and bolts craft, bodies, cover up, disclosure, death, threat, death threats, you name it, Roswell has it. Tom, there's something else I've always been curious. When we travel to outer space as human beings, we put on spacesuits. Were these creatures in any type of suit, if you will, for lack of a better way of putting it? Yes. The uh, witness testimony is that they were wearing these grayish, silvery, tight-fitting, almost like a second skin uh, body suits. Uh, nothing on their heads, like a you know a oxygen or saying that. No, nothing on their heads, but skin tight. Uh, what do they call that? Spandex today? Yeah, I guess it would be spandex. Yeah, yeah it's a silvery, silvery material. Yes, uh, that that was the testimony. We're going to be coming up to the break in just a couple of minutes. I want to tell folks who we're speaking with. Tom Carey is our guest. We're talking about his new book with co-author Don Schmidt. The book is called Inside the Real Area 51. And uh, I'm just amazed. I'm just glued to my seat here, folks, tonight because, uh, like I said, it's the real deal. some of the questions I'm going to ask Don, uh, ask uh, Tom when we come back. One of them is, what is meant by the term blue room? Another one is, what was the jawbone that spoke Martian? www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest book cover. That'll take you right to a spot where you can order his book from the comfort of your own home. Get the coffee going. Get the tea going. Get a beverage of your choice going, folks. We still have a full hour left with Tom. And um, when we come back, we're going to be looking at more of this amazing research that he's put together. Uh, and, and in his new book called Inside the Real Area 51 with co-author Don Schmidt. And is that the music I hear? No. <laughs> You see, Tom, I have to tell you, the music is automated. So whenever it starts, it starts. I have absolutely no control. So every every show, I try to guess when the music is going to start for the break. It will be a six-minute break, just to let you know. And there it is. And uh, so stick around, Tom. Don't go anywhere. you got enough time to uh, take a quick break yep. there. And, don't, uh, uh, don't forget Hangar 18. Right on. That's part of it, too. Talk soon. Welcome back, friends. Welcome back. I'm Brent Holland. Welcome back to Night Fright. Tonight, an incredible show, folks. Inside the Real Area 51, a new book out by Tom Carey with co-author Don Schmidt. And we're getting into some juicy stuff now. We're going to be looking at Hangar 18, of course, and this mysterious bone jaw that spoke Martian, and that's what I want to get to in just a second. But first, I want to thank a fellow by the name of Kelly Logue who puts my website up, nightfrightshow.com, and maintains it. 
week after week after week, and it is daunting, folks, because things change rapidly, and uh, he's a super trooper. Kelly, I know um, you're up in Juneau, Alaska, and thank you so much for doing that. We've never met, folks. You just contacted me off the Internet like that, volunteered, and I said, sure, I'll take you up on your offer, and he's been sorry ever – no, I'm just kidding. Um, and he's been uh, doing it ever since. He's uh, just a terrific, terrific guy. Tom, are you still there? I am still here. Thank you, my friend. Hangar 18. Yes. Let's go there. Is there a real Hangar 18? Well, that's this is uh, just urban legend. That's the uh, uh, the lead into that. Remember, I, I said earlier that uh, if you ask someone about, you ever hear about Area 51, they'll say, "Oh yeah, that's where uh, the aliens are." Yeah. Well, if you ask the question, uh, "Have you ever heard of uh, Ray Patterson?" Most people will say no, but the ones who have will say, "Oh, isn't that where Hangar 18 is, and that and that's where they have the aliens?" So they they the ones that do know about uh, Wright Pat, it's because of Hangar 18 and the mythology that uh, has grown up around it. Now, Brent, if you go to uh, Wright Patterson tomorrow, yes, sir, and as many visitors do, they say, "Well." Can you point me in the direction of Hangar 18? I want to go. I want to see where the aliens are. And the and the information person will say, "Oh my goodness, you are just so far off base. There's no Hangar 18. There never was a Hangar 18." And and and, and what is unstated it as uh, the unstated sentence is, "You stupid dope." <laughs> you know that that's what they're thinking, but. They're correct. There is there, there was no Hangar 18 ever. It was Building 18. It's a play on where they know what you're asking, but they're they're uh, uh, deflecting. The word you used earlier. They're deflecting by saying no, there was no Hangar 18. It's but they don't tell you it was called Building 18, and there was a Building 18. There still is a Building 18, and that is where the aliens were stored. So. Um, Hangar 18 is an interesting story in the, in the research for this book, for that chapter. Yes, sir. Uh, I recall that in 1980, now this is the same year that the uh, Roswell Incident book came out, there was a movie that came out called Hangar 18. Mm-hmm. And I remember it well because I, would, you know, I used to watch the Johnny Carson show at night. It uh, came on very late at night, and uh, this, this one night, the the guest was a fellow by the name of Robert Vaughn, an actor. Mm-hmm. He, he played the man from Uncle. The man from Uncle, absolutely. He was also yeah. in Bullet and uh, several yeah. other things. Yeah. Yes. Uh, um, the uh, I guess you would call him a character actor, but anyway, mm. Robert Vaughn was the star along with Darren McGavin, who played uh, Night Stalker. That's right. And uh, I think he played Mickey Spillane in the Mickey Spillane Mysteries. And uh, so so on the show comes Robert Vaughn, and uh, Johnny Carson says, Hey, hey uh, Bob, uh, what have you been doing lately? He says, Oh, I just finished the movie. Oh, yeah, what, what what's it called? He said, Hangar 18. And when I, as soon as I heard that, I jumped up or sat up. I said, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about that hangar at uh, Wright-Patterson. Mm-hmm. So in trying to trace back where this legend of Hangar 18 started, 
I knew it had to be before the, this Johnny Carson show in 1980. So I'm thinking, my goodness, where where do I go for this? Because uh, I don't remember anything in, in the literature. Well, being an Air Force veteran, I am signed up. I'm a subscriber to it, what they call Air Force Magazine. Mm-hmm. It's published by the uh, Air Force Association. comes out monthly. Well, a couple of years ago, I had forgotten, but they had done an article on UFOs in this Air Force magazine. Of course, being an Air Force magazine, they took the Air Force line, right? <laughs> yeah, well, so, sure. uh, they also had a nice uh, section in the, this article about Roswell. And uh, I disagreed, of course, with everything about it. And uh, so I'm looking at I don't know why I picked that up and started looking at it again. But in the uh, article, the author is talking about this fellow in Florida called uh, that he built himself as a professor, and he was really only a high school graduate. But he signed his books, uh, Professor Robert Spencer Carr. And uh, in this article, the the author mentions that Carr started talking about a Hangar 18 at. Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. I should preface this by saying we did contact the writer-director of the movie Hangar 18 where he got the, the, the name of the, ti- the, the mm. title for his movie. He said, well, it was a term that was being bandied about in the early 1970s, and that's where he got it. So uh, the, the, the magazine article pointed to this Robert Spencer Carr as the source for this Hangar 18. Now, I remember this well because in 1974, I was moving from California, Sacramento, California, uh, to uh, the East Coast to go to the University of Toronto to continue (laughs) my uh, uh, studies in anthropology. And I remember at at the... uh, that's By the way, right. you can. Uh, I just want to interrupt. If you still want to study animals, folks, you can go to the uh, the University of Toronto. Except now you can study the mayor, Rob Ford. <laughs> Sorry about that. Go ahead. I had to get that in. Uh, yeah, uh, yes, he's, he's he's big down here too. So. Yeah, well, he's big everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll leave we'll leave that one for, for now. So, uh, so I rem- I remember this story. As I was getting one, uh, driving to the airport to fly to Toronto, this story about the fellow who was talking about there's we got to we got to open up uh, Wright Patterson. There's a hangar there, Hangar 18, where these things are. And for some reason, this made big news down here. Big news. This Robert Spencer car. Mm. Well, it turns out that uh, according to his son, he was just a just a fabricator of tall tales and uh he uh, sort of passed away in disgrace but the term stuck hangar 18 stuck now where did he get hangar 18 from well he was uh, living in florida and as you know a lot of military people retired to florida so obviously a number of those uh, retirees were from dayton ohio who worked at wright patterson and they had told him about the aliens, uh, the bodies, and the wreckage in conjunction with Building 18 and a Hangar 23, which was connected to uh, Building 18. 
And somehow, when it passed through Carr's brain, it came out not Building 18, but Hangar 18. Maybe Hangar 18 sounded sexier, you know, maybe, than building, building 18. That was probably it, actually. Yeah. So that's where that's where the uh, the uh, nomenclature of Hangar 18 got started. This fellow in the early 1970s trying to rekindle the old uh, crash story that uh, 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 Skelly, uh, uh, the Frank Scully, behind the Flying Saucers, 1950 mm-hmm. book, uh, tried to. Uh, it was actually a popular book. But the story was a, a phony story cooked up by a couple of con men to uh, sell some uh, uh, oil equipment. And that's a long story we won't get into, but the Scully book was was finally uh, uh, put to rest as a fabrication based on some faulty stories. Well, anyways, Carr was trying to re- reopen this story. And he used as his uh, focal point this Hangar 18, and that's how it all got started. And uh, having it uh, put into a movie, a motion picture, in 1980 sort of uh, uh, codified it, codified it in the pu- public's mind of a Hangar 18 at Wright-Patterson. So that's the the, the, my, the story that the book goes into the uh, – the really details of that story, and uh, I, I feel pretty good about it because prior to that chapter, uh, I wondered myself how all this got started. Because yeah. it certainly has, has gotten a lot of traction over the years, and uh, it's because of this uh, Robert Spencer Carr uh, uh, fellow. So, uh, anyway, you learn all about that in our book, and it's uh, you know uh, just just. Getting to the truth, like Jack Webb says, the uh, uh, the LAPD poli- uh, detective, just the facts, ma'am, just the just facts. Just the facts, yeah, that's a good one. Um, let's go to the bone, the jawbone that spoke Martian. What the heck is that about? <laughs> the, uh, our, our publisher wanted to change the chapter title. We like the chapter title, the jawbone that spoke Martian. And uh, so we, we convinced them that that was a better chapter title. And what that is, it's a fascinating story. And I don't want to give everything away here, but uh, it's a story uh, based on a, a, a dental technician named uh, John Musgrove, still alive in his 80s, uh, living in Dayton, Ohio, that uh, used to work at Wright-Patterson the Dental Clinic. And uh, after he retired, he re- started working in a local VA dental clinic and uh this was before the va had all the troubles uh mm. that they're currently having but mm-hmm. uh one day his boss comes in he says uh here i got something in this uh, box i want to show you and in the box is a jawbone unlike uh, any he had ever seen before it was uh you know the human jawbone is sort of Parabol- looking down on the, the, the mandible, the lower jaw, is parabolic in shape. It's like a parabola, you know. Uh, uh, ape, ape jaw bones are U-shaped, and uh, monkey, monkey jaw bones are all different shapes, and prosimian jaw bones are V-shaped. Well, this was, this was uh, V-shaped, this jaw bone, but it was much larger than any prosimian. Now, prosimian is like a tarsier or a lemur or a loris. They, uh, 
you, you would recognize him if you saw a picture of him. Okay. And, uh, but this jawbone was larger. And, but it was V-shaped. And it didn't have any teeth. It's not that all the teeth were knocked out. It's just that it never had any teeth. Hmm. It's like a jawbone without teeth. So, uh, Musk, Musgrove, Musk, Musgrove said, well, you know, well, what do you want me to do with this? And his boss said, well, I want you to make a plaster mold of it, a plaster cast. You know, just re, we want you to duplicate it in plaster, uh, plaster Paris. So, he makes a mold of it, plastic mold, and then he pours the plaster Paris and, uh, makes the, the jawbone, uh, replicate, replicates it. And so the next day, his boss comes in. Are, are you done that? Uh, you done that? Yeah, it's finished. It's right over here. Oh, good job, good job. So he takes the boss takes the plaster, the uh, plastic. I'm sorry, getting mixed up between plaster and plastic. He takes the plastic mold and crunches it up and throws it in the wastebasket. Just you know, crunches mm-hmm. it up, Crunch, and it it's up. Gone. Yep. Yeah, going in the wastebasket. So he takes the the plaster plaster reproductive cast and then the original bone and uh, puts it in the box and out he goes. Well, the Musgrove says, well, geez, I, I, I don't know what this is. Uh, my boss told me never to, to talk about this. Uh, don't ever acknowledge having done this. And so I don't know what's going on here. Let me Let me see where this guy's going. So he follows him out to the front door, and his boss meets up with two guys in Air Force Blue. And Musgrove recognized one of them as being from Wright, Wright Patterson. And the boss hands the box to the, the, the one of the officers and shakes hands and goodbye, and off they go. So Musgrove uh, says, Geez, I don't know what that was all about. Well, it was later on uh, – uh, in a day, he says, well, I don't know what that's all about, so he, but I, but it had to be something, so he retrieves the broken up uh, template, the mold, and he pieces it back together again, and he re-pours another jawbone, another, another plastic jawbone. Huh. He says, I don't know what this is, uh, maybe I'll find out someday, so he puts it in a, a, uh, safekeeping in a bank deposit, uh, Say box. Uh, box, yeah, uh, for years, and by this time he, uh, along the way, he hears about Roswell, uh, alien bodies, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, at uh, Wright Patterson, and he uh, makes friends with a local journalist called Carl Day. Carl Day has an interest in UFOs; he always has had, and uh, we dedicate. Uh, he's one of the the people that we dedicate the book to because he was supposed to be a co-author with us, but he, as soon as we signed the paperwork, he passed away. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yes. So uh, we uh, dedicate the book to, to Carl Day and to J. Allen Hynek. And uh, so Carl Day, he says, let me have a look at that jawbone that you've been telling me about. And uh, Carl Day immediately makes the connection that it's from one of these aliens, you know, the mm-hmm. the most common description of the head is that it looks like a pear, you know, with the with the bulbous part at the top right. and the more pointed part at the bottom. So the pointed part matches almost perfectly with this jawbone. So uh, Carl Day takes the jawbone 
somehow he has a speaking engagement at Wright-Patterson. He has a speaking engagement. He's known locally on the TV as a journalist, you know, a, a features journalist. He does different uh, special interest reports. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, on this occasion, he goes to Wright-Patterson. He's talking about something. And then he puts a picture, he uh, a slide projection up on the screen, large screen of a of an alien that uh, was described by uh, his friend uh, uh, Len Stringfield, and it has this pointed jaw. So he takes this plaster cast of this jawbone and holds it up to the screen, and it matches perfectly in size and shape and and uh, height to the uh, this jawbone that he's holding in his hand and the officers in the in the audience did not like this at all they thought they were uh, what do you call it bait and switch oh yeah yeah they thought yeah. it was a bait and switch job yeah. and they started really giving Carl Day the business but Carl Day uh, he accomplished what he had wanted to do was to make them aware of what the, what information he had and that there's something going on at the base. Maybe not everybody knew about it, but a lot of them did, and he wanted them to know that he knew. And, uh, boy, they really gave him the business, and uh, he was never asked to speak there again, uh, obviously. And uh, so there's a lot more to the story, but it, uh, it's in the book. <laughs> it's in the book, yeah. and that's why we say it, uh, it spoke Martian because the conclusion was that it was – these two Air Force fellas had done this on the QT, had brought this jawbone over uh, on their own, is the speculation, and uh, had the plaster cast, uh, plaster cast made on their own. And uh, they, t- you know, they took it back uh, after it was made and uh, probably returned the jawbone to its resting place without anybody realizing it. So, uh, what's interesting is I have seen the. Uh, the second cast that Musgrove made. Really? Okay. It's uh, now on display at the UFO Museum, the International UFO Museum in Roswell. Wow. And uh, I took pictures of it and uh, this past summer because it's, it's a new display, and that's where it's residing as we speak. Folks. You're going to want to get this book if you've been listening all night or if you've just joined us. We're speaking with Tom Carey, of course. The book is called Inside the Real Area 51, co-authors Don Schmidt. Now, easy way to get all of our guest books, folks, as always, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest book cover and get the book. Now, I want to ask you, in your bio, it says that you had top secret clearance, my friend. Yes. Are you willing to go into that direction? Oh, well, uh, top secret clearance doesn't mean you're clear to see aliens. I mean, uh, that's, that's uh, one thing. Um, the, uh, the, um, go ahead. What I was tasked to do required a top secret clearance, and that, that means you, uh, you know, you haven't been arrested. I mean, what they do is they send the uh, – uh, people around to your neighborhood to ask about you. Do you know this guy? Is, uh, does he look okay? I mean, has he done anything in the neighborhood that we should be, you know, that might uh, reflect uh, badly on him? And uh, they they check everything out about you. And 
I didn't know that. I didn't know that until later on. My folks said, you know, there was somebody around here asking about you. And I said, oh, really? And, uh, yeah, it was uh, the security people. But uh, for what I did, I was in communications. And uh, every Air Force facility, I was in the Air Force, mm -hmm. every Air Force facility, back in those days, they had uh, they didn't have computers. They had teletype machines and every message that went out on teletype had to be encrypted and every message that came back had to be decrypted and i i maintained the machine that did that oh the i see encryption okay. and decryption and a teletype machine uh for our younger uh listeners it's kind of like a a fax a typewriter if you will yeah, um, the, the, yeah. The, the, the keys actually click. It's like, That's a, right. it's like a typewriter without somebody typing on it. You can see the clicks, the keys going, you know, it's, it's like the old newsrooms. Uh, yeah, uh, the, the ticker tapes. The ticker tapes, yes. Yeah. Now, what is interesting is that in my Air Force career, I was stationed at a little radar site in remote Alaska. And uh, if you ever saw the movie The Thing from Another World, sure, it's my favorite, uh, my favorite all-time science fiction thriller made in 1951, uh, starring uh, James Arness as The Thing, is a carrot man they call him, a giant vegetable creature. But that movie just had everything, and uh, the radar site that I was stationed at was remarkably similar to this site in the movie, The Thing from Another World. And so uh, what would happen was that because in that area you get a lot of snow in, uh, during the year, and all of the uh, local uh, individual buildings were interconnected by uh, hallways. Right. So you, you didn't have to go outside. Minus 20, 30, 40, yeah. Well, if I ever found myself late at night walking alone in one of these these uh, hallways, I would pick it up and start sprinting <laughs> <laughs> because I would think about that movie, The Thing from Another World, coming down the hallway from the other direction. And, uh, boy, I was really spooked for that one year up there because of the, where I was stationed. So uh, I had my own little... Uh, uh, we didn't we didn't see aliens, but I'll, I'll tell you this though. I was going to ask if you had any incidents because during the Cold War, right? Uh, this was uh, actually uh, August. I'm sorry, uh, 1964 and 1965. There you go. And do you know that when uh, I rotated out, we uh, we go down through Elmendorf Air Force Base at in uh, Anchorage. The headlines in the newspaper, the first newspaper I saw had a headline, and it was about local UFO sightings. It showed people looking up in the sky, UFOs in Anchorage. And that's that's un unbelievable, but it's true. That was the first newspaper headline I saw when I hit Anchorage was that it was about UFOs, the, the uh, UFO flap that they were having. I'm glad I did not know that up in the, when I was up uh, north. That have, you know, you would have been um, really spooked, really spooked, and just running down those hallways. Was there any um, Cold War incidences that you can talk about that were up there? 
Well, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin uh, occurred when I was sure. in, uh, up in remote Alaska. That was it's, the start of the ahead. shooting Vietnam, Vietnam uh, war for the United States was uh, the Gulf of Tonkin uh, uh, incident. Uh, but as far as anything else, uh, no, we were. I was near Mount McKinley, which we could see on a clear day, uh, the the tallest peak in North America, and the, the beautiful scenery. Beautiful scenery, and uh, it was. Uh, if you like to hunt and fish, that was the place to go. That's but I, place I, I, to go. Didn't, I didn't. I was not a hunter or a fisherman, but uh, uh, the food was good, uh, uh, and I was a remote for a year. And it turned out to be fortuitous for me because Alaska was considered a, a uh, an overseas assignment back in those days. So. When I came back from Alaska, they couldn't then turn around and send me to Southeast Asia, so I wound up in oh. California. Wound up in California. It's um, it's funny uh, you brought up the the movie because one of my questions for you, and I'm going to go into it right now because I think it's a good segue. Uh, what's happening with Magic Men? This is a film that's being based this on is, something. Uh, this is a sad topic, uh, Brent. Oh. I thought it was a good topic. This, it, it was at one time, and uh, I, uh, I'm not going to pull any punches here. Go ahead. But uh, this uh, next month, it will be four years since it was announced uh, as uh, we we're going to make a movie out of uh, Witness to Roswell and uh, Top Secret Magic, Stan Friedman's book. Yeah. Combine, combine the two in a movie called Magic Men, which was about the Roswell case that's four years ago next month and uh, the script has been written for a number of years but it has not been you know the books are optioned and mm. but it has not gone into production and uh, we are pretty much uh, at this point uh, giving up uh, you know Hollywood is uh, Hollywood uh, 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 I just say it has not happened, and we have no prospects at the moment uh, for it going forward. So yeah, that's too uh, bad because you know when Stan was on my show, oh geez, it must be a year ago, a little less maybe. We were talking about people that were going to play him, and I had mentioned I thought a, a good person to play him would be Arnold Schwarzenegger with a beard, and he <laughs> laughed. Yes. Well, <laughs> the, the thing is, Brent, is none of us are getting any younger. And uh, it's now four years, and uh, we are of course disappointed. We are we are of course disappointed. And uh, but you never know. Maybe tomorrow they'll they'll you know it'll say okay boys we're going forward. It just we just don't know. And uh, if you know Hollywood, uh, one day you're hot, the next day you're not. Yes, I know. Yeah, it's true. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Lamar Waldron, had one of his books optioned by Leonardo DiCaprio. It's a JFK book and was supposed to come out for the 50th. Yeah. And we're still all very optimistic that that book will see the light of the day. Uh, hopefully this year, uh, Leonardo will be uh, involved with it. So uh, look forward. I'm very, very much looking forward to that. But I, I'm sorry I think Leonardo is my wife's, my wife's favorite actor. Is that right? People yeah. tell me I look like him. Oh, well, then she would Not like you, too. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> no, but, you know, a year ago I would have still been uh, optimistic, but as we sit here tonight, I, I'm not optimistic. 
Let's hope it turns around. Yeah. Your TV miniseries. Yes. Um, we. Uh, this is uh, another uh, Hollywood uh, uh, person, and that looks like that's dead too. Oh man. Yes. Okay. So uh, again, it's 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 uh, you know you uh, one moment you're up, buoyed up sky high, and the next moment you're down low because it's uh, it's yesterday, no tomorrow, maybe yes again. We just don't know. Apparently, it was pitched to several networks, and they they said no. So uh, I'm very surprised to hear that, especially with the success of shows like Ancient Aliens. Yes. Uh, uh, this is what's amazing, uh, Brent, is some of these shows, I, I just don't get it. I, I don't get it. Not Ancient Aliens, but some of these, uh, you know, was it Finding Bigfoot? Uh, mm. uh, they, they never find it. <laughs> A you know, good friend of mine says, well, it, maybe next week they'll find them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's two or three years now, you know, they're out there making these calls out into the wind. They never find it. Uh, ghost hunters, they never, you know, they, oh, wait, did you feel that chill? Well, how many, how many chills can you, can you feel, and, but, but still not, uh, you know, find a ghost? Uh, but those, those are actually the better shows. Some of them are just, uh, uh, uh this reality business is just, uh, some of those are just, I just don't know how they have shows, you know? Yeah, it's kind of mind boggling. Here, Roswell, uh, Roswell Brent is a mystery. That's left to us from left over from the 20th century, uh, technically still unsolved. We hope to have something out before the year's over that will hopefully uh, satisfy most reasonable people. Inevitably, I have to ask this in every show when we do something, either a JFK show or a UFO show, some 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 type of subject matter that requires disclosure. Are we moving closer to disclosure? Oh no, you, not you're at talking, all. You talking about government disclosure? Yeah, it's not. It'll never happen. At least in the U.S., it will not happen in the U.S. because of a number of reasons. Uh, number one, there has to be a uh, public mandate for it, and there and there, you know, people have so many problems in their own lives, the economy, and things like that. Of course. If it's ever learned that uh, with all that's going on, the president or anybody in his administration is looking into UFOs, that would be the end of his administration. You know, with all our problems, what are you doing looking into UFOs? That's just, uh, you know, just get out of here with that. Get somebody serious in there. That that would be the attitude. Uh, the other thing is that the Air Force and the government, if they ever admitted, folks, well, we've been lying to you for over 60 years. How's that go over? We've been lying to you for over 60 years. What? So the question then is, well, what else are you lying to us about? <laughs> so uh, I, I do not, and Don, uh, Don is with me on this. Uh, we just do not see any disclosure uh, short of uh, one of them landing on the White House lawn. And even then, the skeptics would say, oh, well, that's just a Hollywood trick. That's just a Hollywood trick. They wouldn't believe it. But, uh, no. Uh, and the other the other reason is that back at Roswell, to suppress that case, they had to commit civil rights violations mm-hmm. by threatening civilians yeah. with death. 
And uh, they never want to admit to that because uh, it's unconscionable what they did back then. And they would not want to own up to that. And they don't want to own up to the, the fact that they've been actually lying to us about something as important as other life, uh, other life in the universe uh, for over 60 years. Just, I just don't see it. Just speculation on your part, Tom. Do you think there has been dialogue between the various nations trying to come up with a solution? Because certainly it can't just be Canada, the United oh, States, Mexico. Between, between nations, yeah. certainly there have been a sharing of notes, yes. But as far as, okay, what are we going to do about this, uh, I don't think there's been anything uh, coordinated officially. There, there, there's, uh, certainly there's been uh, discussions of uh, – of uh, various cases, but I don't see any coordination of, okay, this is the plan of action that we're all going to uh, partake in. No, I, I, I do not see that. And why Roswell? Why did the aliens come down to Roswell that day, July 2nd? That's a, that's a good question. We're asked that question often. Yeah. And the answer is, of course, we don't know. But the, 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 uh, we do know that they did. And to try to speculate, and it's all speculation as to why they would come to New Mexico. Uh, you know, the skeptics like to say, well, why, why would they fly millions of light years just to come and crash into the side of a mountain? Why would they do that? Well, we don't know, but they did. And, uh, as far as why they, why they crashed, we speculate that it was either a lightning strike or some other malfunction internally. But, uh, so, but if I'm, if I'm from another solar system in 1947 and I'm cruising and I, I, I notice this blue planet that appears to have water and it's, uh, you know, speculated by uh, scientists that you have to have water to have life That's on, right. on any planet. And uh, we, co- we cruise into the area of the Earth. And, oh, my goodness, here's this nice blue planet. Let's go down and take a look. And I'm, I'm speculating that uh, if they can come from another solar system, another galaxy, what have you, they are capable of doing anything. And so speculating that, okay, well, where on Earth shall we shall we look? Well, this uh, country, uh, United States, that seems to be pretty, pretty well advanced as far as countries on this planet. And, uh, whoa, our uh, machines here are going crazy over the state of New Mexico. Why is that? Oh, my goodness. We got nuclear, uh, we've got atomic uh, things going on down there. Uh, we've got uh, Los Alamos, the Los Alamos Laboratories. We got Roswell Army Airfield that has atomic bombs. We have White Sands uh, Missile Range where they're testing rockets. This must be the place where we should check out. So, so that's the answer, is that all of these uh, top-secret uh, things going on in New Mexico. And New Mexico did have the most sightings and uh, back in 47. So that, that would be my speculation, because uh, the bottom line is we don't know. But uh, Does the president, do you feel the president knows? Uh, we, there are presidents who did know, of course, starting with Harry Truman. Sure, Eisenhower. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower certainly knew. You think JFK did? Uh, that's a good. Uh, I know that Nixon knew. Uh, certainly Herbert Walker Bush knew uh, knows. Huh. Um, 
don't know about uh, his son, G, uh, w. George W., but uh, JFK, I speculate, uh, you know, there's speculation about his assassination that it had to do with uh, the memo uh, we sent out of aliens. Um, yes, he was yeah, going to, uh, he was going to reveal alien. I, I don't know. I'm 50, 50 on JFK. That okay. He might have known, but uh, the ones who didn't know, I, I don't Obama doesn't know. Uh, he doesn't care. I don't think uh, about the uh, Nick. Uh, Clinton was interested. Clinton was interested, and I think he does know. I don't think he was shown anything, but I think his interest uh, has carried him to come to understand uh, that the uh, the rumors are true. I know he has a copy of our book, Witness to Roswell. Is that uh, right? Yes. Uh, I did you sign that, it for him? Uh, uh, the way that came about was that um, the uh, his history teacher at George Washington University was the father of Paul Davids. Now, Paul Davids uh, uh, wrote the foreword to our Witness to Roswell book. So when uh, Clinton was in New York with Hillary, Hillary was giving a I guess it was a fundraiser. She was giving a talk, and when the talk was over, Paul Davids uh, went up to to uh, Bill Clinton, introduced himself as uh, the son of uh, his uh, history teacher at George Washington University. And, of course, uh, Clinton recognized the name immediately, and uh, he gave Clinton a copy of Witness to Roswell because he had written the foreword. Whether he has actually read it, I don't know, but uh, he does have a copy. He does have a copy. <laughs> That's fun. What's next for you? I mean, you know, this Roswell case, it kind of reminds me, there's so many parallels between this and the JFK case. I keep going back and forth. Oh, absolutely, to, absolutely. Because every now and then we'll get a new film that will come out, somebody has passed away, that was in Dealey Plaza that day and is uh, that filmed the assassination from a different angle. And new information keeps rising. I, I will tell you this, Brent. I was not a big uh, aficionado of the assassination, but they had something on TV uh, last fall. It was a two-hour special, and I am convinced that that's what happened. It was... Uh, uh, Lee Oswald did try. He did try to assassinate the president. Instead of firing, he never got three shots off. He only got two off. The first one hit the ground and missed, and but a, a fragment of it, it caught the president in the back of the head, uh, just a little bit, and nicked him. Uh, and his second shot was the one that went through the uh, just below the neck. Right. The third shot came from the car following the presidential vehicle from a Secret Service agent who uh, inadvertently, accidentally discharged an AR-15 rifle when the when the uh, car jerked, and uh, it, it happened to hit the president in the head. I'm convinced that that's exactly what happened. They did it by ballistic tests, uh, angles, and all that sort of stuff. And it explains the bizarre behavior of the Secret Service men after the uh, after the president was hit. Every, it explains everything, and I'm convinced that that's what happened. Hmm. Okay, you know, in both cases, there's been a cover up. 
And, oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I'm thinking in both cases, the mainstream media just doesn't want to get involved. Do you they think they're part? They Go ahead, don't please. want to get involved. You're right. Why is that? Why is it left up to people with radio shows like George Norrie's, Art Bell's, mine, others? Because uh, in the case of JFK, they love JFK. And to say that he died from an accident, which is one of one of the Secret Service men were, was heard to tell Bobby, uh, JFK's brother, when he called, he said, he uh, asked the uh, Secret Service man, how's the president? And the Secret Service man said, there's been an accident. Well, they, and Bobby then took control of what was going to happen to the president. And uh, they, it, it's, it's, I don't know how to say it, less romantic. I don't want to say anything about it. An assassination is romantic. But his legacy, to say that he died from an accident, is not as uh, noble as being assassinated, if that makes any sense. You, no, you I, underst I understand your perspective. I, I guess the point I was trying to make in both cases, it took quite a bit to cover up um, the deed, if you will. And going back to Roswell, it took quite a bit to cover up that as well. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, people had to think, think and map out different scenarios to try and uh, I'll use that word deflect again deflect uh, not only uh, the American people but the people of the world that nothing out of the ordinary really took place yes without media cooperation I'm talking about mainstream media cooperation because the cable channels you know they're pretty much free to do as they wish but the mainstream media which carries the most credibility in the minds of most uh, citizens Mm -hmm. uh, they all, at least in my opinion, they have agendas, and in the case of JFK, they love JFK, and they wanted to keep this aura about his demise at the hands of, a, of an assassin, uh, rather than it was just a simple accident that uh, killed, uh, uh, the bullet that killed him was accidentally discharged. He said, that's what the, this particular special, and, and to me, it, uh, it explains most of the behavior that went on after the, the uh, shots rang out. Tom, in your opinion, in your research, has there been anything that has shocked you with your research about the Roswell case? Um, that's a good question. I've never been asked that question. Um, what has shocked me is, it came as a shock at first, but now I understand it, is uh, people who were there, we know who were there, uh, uh, they wouldn't out and out lie, but they would just say, well, I don't remember that. I don't remember, you know, we've had the, oh, I, I was at this base, I was that base, I don't remember being at Roswell. Well, what it was is that they were living on a government pension. You know, they were they were retired military or retired uh, civil servants after they got out of the Air Force. And they were what they were doing is they were protecting their pensions is what they were doing. I see. Uh, rather than making, his, making history correct, they were more interested in protecting their pensions. And that came as an un, unwelcome 
a surprise, let's call it, uh, at first. But then as the time went on, I, I understood it because these were elderly people and they didn't know. They were sworn to secrecy back in 47 and they didn't know if that they spoke that they would, they, they might lose their pensions and that's what they were concerned about. And a different era back then too. We weren't accustomed to having governments lie to us in that era. Correct. Correct. Completely. There was a, there was a, a mutual trust. Now we are so skeptical of governments. Oh. Yes, you don't, uh, uh, you just don't trust them. And Precisely. what's interesting is that the New York Times is a, uh, ultra liberal, uh, publication, but, uh, they, they never believe anything a military officer says or the military says at face value. You know, mm-hmm. they, uh, they have to check things out before they they uh, believe anything. Well, except in the case of Roswell, that uh, the balloon explanation they bought, lock, stock, and barrel right up front. Oh, boy, good enough for me. Case closed. That's the only thing I know that they ever believed from a military source up front at face value. Everything else, they, they say, well, I don't know. We better check that out. The, the, the thing is that... Uh, Organizations and people who depend on their livelihood, uh, on their credibility, the credibility factor, they do not want their names in the same paragraph, on the same page, in the same book as the word UFO, because it, uh, they feel that it impinges and fringes upon their credibility, which is their livelihood. We're talking about doctors. Lawyers, professional yeah. people, politicians, those people in the limelight, they, they may, uh, on the quiet, you know, in the, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you know, they settle down with a book, might be about UFOs, but they don't want anybody to know about it because if you're interested in UFOs or Bigfoot or, uh, uh, Lizard Man or anything, uh, at the, what they call paranormal, well, then there's something not normal about you. That, that's, that's the way, the way it is. It's funny, people have been ostracized. Has that, has that happened to you and, um, yes. and Don? It has, eh? over and over again. Yeah, I, I lost, uh, I lost one job because of it. And, uh, another one I didn't lose, but, uh, I was sorry I told my fellow worker, uh, he says, oh, please tell, tell me about, tell me about Roswell, tell me about Roswell. I said, are you sure you want to, Learn about this, or yes, yes, yes. Well, I told about Roswell. Well, every time after that, do you remember the old show Outer Limits? Sure, of course. The theme song. Remember the theme song from Outer Limits? No, that I can't remember. It went. It went you know, something something you know, like that. Yes. Well, every time he saw me after that at work, he would go. Oh. Was I sorry I ever told him? He's mocking you. Ah, I just want to bring up a couple of interesting parallels uh, between the JFK assassination, if you will, and also uh, Roswell and um, UFOs. Uh, I had mentioned before Richard Helms. uh, Sorry, not Richard Helms. I'm sorry. He took over for, um, um, oh, my goodness, I've lost it. You're talking about the defense minister uh, for Canada. No, uh, actually, it was, I was going to talk about the fellow who made Area 51, um, Bissell, Richard Bissell. 
he, uh, in 1955, again, folks, he made, he made Area 51. Well, Richard Bissell was responsible for special ops in the CIA, and part of that special ops was the Bay of Pigs, and Kennedy ended up firing him because they held the CIA held back a special report that they did themselves that said the Bay of Pigs would, Bay of Pigs would never succeed. And that's a true story. And uh, here we have this guy that's in charge of Area 51 and uh, also involved with the JFK um, trying to blackmail, in my opinion, JFK into going into uh, Cuba. Now, the other part that was uh, brought to, brought out to me by a friend of mine, Alan, in, in Washington was Curtis LeMay and Barry Goldwater in 1964 asked – Barry Goldwater asked Curtis LeMay – about Area 51. Do you know this story, Tom? Yes. Uh, this is do, the, do you want to tell the folks? The you're talking about the Blue Room. There you go. Yeah. Do you want to tell the folks that story? Yes. Um, the Blue Room these days usually refers to the most secret location in any Air Force base or any military facility, the Blue Room. And it's usually the room where they have all the computers and the radar scopes. Well, back in 19, uh, in the early 60s, before they had all of that stuff, the Blue Room was still considered to be the most secret location on any base. Well, Barry Goldwater, Republican senator from uh, Arizona, former presidential candidate in 1964, uh, lost to Lyndon Johnson in a landslide, but... Uh, he was also the head of the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee. He was also a uh, reserve major general in the Air Force, so he wore several hats. He had the, the political clout, and he was also an Air Force general. His good friend was Curtis LeMay, mm. then the chief of staff of the Air Force. And we're talking now about the SAC as well. Uh, yes, former commander of uh, Strategic Air Command. He built that uh, organization to a high state of readiness. World War II, he was known as uh, Curtis Bomber LeMay. No, I'm sorry, uh, Curtis Bombs Away LeMay. Uh, he uh, firebombed Japan prior to the dropping of the atomic devices. So uh, he was a, a, a cigar-smoking uh, Go get them, uh, results oriented type of guy. So, uh, Goldwater, in his uh, function of uh, head of the uh, Armed Service, Senate Armed Services Committee, was doing a tour of Wright Patterson Air Force Base in 1963. And uh, Goldwater was a UFO buff, as we would call them today. He was interested in UFOs was a ham radio operator. So he's over in Ray Patterson. He says, oh, my goodness, I've heard about this. He calls up LeMay. He says, "Uh, General, I've heard about this blue room here. I'm at Ray Patterson. I've heard about this blue room, and you have some interesting things in there that I understand are are from uh, space. Might I have a look in that room? Now, you figure here's a U.S. sitting U.S. senator elected by the people, mm-hmm. chairman of the Armed Services Committee, major general in the Air Force Reserve. What, you know, what more do you want? It's a perfect storm here. And uh, he said, 
it was the only time, and he was friends with LeMay. And he said, it's the only time that General, he never cussed me out before, but this time he just let loose on me. I was totally taken aback. He said, hell no, you can't go in there. I can't go in there, meaning himself. I don't believe that for a second. If LeMay couldn't get in there, I don't see how anybody could. Yeah. But he said, I can't get in there, you can't get in there, and if you ever ask me that again, I'll see that you're court-martialed. Well, thank God they were friends, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, Goldwater says, wow, uh, he, he, you know, he acceded to uh, LeMay's demand that he dropped that subject uh, forthwith, and he said he never brought it up again. Well, we wish, we, we wish he did. But uh, he was too much of a gentleman. He was a, you know, he was a gentleman, and he never did bring up the subject again. But he tried to get into that blue room. No doubt, it was in Building 18, and uh, that that was basically the story. We have a whole chapter on that, how that came about, the blue room, uh, inside and, inside the real Area 51 is the name of the book. We've been talking about. Area 51, folks, with Tom Carey tonight, who is the author. His co-author, of course, is Don Schmidt. Easy way to get the book, and it's just started to rain, folks. Isn't that great? <laughs> <laughs> www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest book cover. And just as an added little tidbit um, about Curtis LeMay to show you how much of a hawk he was, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, Ted Sorensen, JFK speechwriter, uh, was in the XCOM meeting, and Ted told me that his attitude, Curtis LeMay's attitude, was that we should go ahead and do a first strike against Russia because we were, we would probably survive, um, more people would survive in the United States than in Russia. And that was yep. Curtis LeMay's attitude. So, so bombs away LeMay. Bombs away LeMay. Um, don't be a stranger, my friend. The music is going to start any second. <laughs> you know, LeMay have... ran for vice president I know. in 1968 with George Wallace, I believe. That's right. Isn't that an amazing... What a duo that would have been. What a, what a duo that would have been. <laughs> but we ended, up, <laughs> we ended up with Nixon instead, so there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's next for the two of you? We are... Uh, working on several projects. Uh, we are still finding live witnesses uh, who were first-hand witnesses back from 1947. There's a, just a few of them left. We are trying to find every last one, and we are working on a project really big. We hope to have an announcement before the year's over. Thank you so much, Tom, for being our guest tonight. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. We'll see you all next time. Have a nice night, everybody. <laughs>